shopping, cooking, dining, and traveling with the planet in mind. How can all of that be done in a realistic and meaningful way? I'm Jimmy McDonough, the eco-friendly food, travel, and adventure editor for realfoodtraveler.com, a digital culinary travel magazine. I'm honored to guest host this podcast and introduce Real Food Traveler podcast listeners to Jennifer Bushman, Chief Marketing Officer of Quarry Arctic. To learn about sustainable and eco-friendly food production and the people behind those stories, I recently attended the Edible Institute Conference. Jennifer blew me away with her passion and knowledge of global food production practices and the role of the oceans in feeding the planet. I just knew I had to ask her to share that with RFT listeners. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. It's so good to have you. So um, just full disclosure, Quare did sponsor me to attend the Edible Institute Conference. Now, let us get to know you a bit more, Jennifer. Please share your story about what you do now, how you got into this business, and how you came to be so passionate and knowledgeable about global food production. Such a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's a lot. Um, You know, because all of our journeys are a winding one. And I think that I was lucky enough to start out with a family that was passionate about food. And everything I learned, all of the storytelling, the things that were good and bad about the day were stories that were told through the kitchen as the women in my life were preparing dinner. And Mm. I think that it really, the roots of it began there. I'm very connected to the state of Colorado. My grandparents were third generation um, cattle ranchers in rural Colorado. They had their own family store. The other side of my family was from California and there were all of the abundance that the ocean brought in that time with fish and seafood. And now it's a convergence of all of those things. And it was very interesting for me. I always tell this story that I fell in love with two fish. One was the fish that my grandfather caught on the rivers of Colorado, the trout that I ate right off the river, brown butter in a cast iron skillet. I mean, I just loved Mm. that connection with him, (laughs) the corn that came right off the field and went into the boiling salted water to go with it. And then I fell in love with this salmon from a third generation family farmer called Quare Arctic. And what it did for me was show the role of the water farmer and the importance that fish and seafood and what I call other blue foods really mean to us and to the future of our food system. So when those two things combined, and I realized that we weren't looking at the water farmer in the same reverence, the same storytelling as we were the land farmer, I knew that I had work to do. Wow. Great perspectives. Thank you, uh, Jennifer, for sharing that. Um, And again, that's what really caught my attention at the conference. Um, And I it's so interesting to hear about your experiences in Colorado and and your passion for food from an early age. Oh, I I mean, but don't we all, I feel like it's like this fingerprint that gets put on us when we are born. It's all of those great things that connect us if we're lucky enough to be able to taste different foods, to be exposed to different things. It really starts at a very, very young age. And that's why it's so important that we 
get access to these blue foods into vulnerable communities, that we have kids that are tasting them because they really are the most sustainable and the most nutritious foods on the planet. So we have to start them early eating seaweed or they're never going to. Wow. Well, um, we definitely need to talk more about seaweed in just a moment, right? <laughs> yes. So much to talk about around seaweed. There really is. Um, so uh, Jennifer, what do you think Real Food Traveler listeners need to know about the role of the oceans in our global food supplies? I think you just touched upon that, but if you can expand a bit more, that would be terrific. Yeah, I think for context, everyone should understand that food from our waters both marine waters, those salt water water, those salt waters from the ocean, and the fresh water, those lakes and, and streams and wetlands feed over three billion people on the planet every day. So we're really relying on them. It's the largest food bank in the world that we have. It's the only thing that we can say, you can still go out and fish for your dinner. And then on top of all of that, those, those omega-3s, those vitamins, those minerals, they're so significantly important to global nutrition. So it's important that we merge water protection and understand that there must be water production in order to have enough food to feed 10 billion people on the planet in 2050. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is a, a daunting... Um... Uh, vision there, isn't it? Um, feeding that many people and with so many billions relying upon um, fresh, clean waters um, of uh, salt and, you know, regular water. So can you please uh, tell us about Quare and its origin story? At the conference, you described that and it was just so fascinating. And I think our listeners will really appreciate it. You know, it's such an interesting thing. We have been fishing our waters, and farming our waters for thousands of years. There were eel farms that go that date back all the way, I mean, thousands and thousands of years, there were eel farms in Australia. King Kamehameha had the fish pond system developed in Hawaii for the very fact that they needed more food security and they would fish would come in and they would raise those fish until they had grown. So it was easier once the fishery moved to be able to make sure he could feed his people. So there has always been this alignment um, between farmers and fishers on water. But somehow over the years, we have developed a consumptive entitlement to ocean resources. And we have this feeling that it has to be wild in order for it to be good. And what's so incredible to me about Quare is that they began generations and generations ago as Vikings on an island at 66 degrees north and 13 degrees east, all the way in the Arctic Circle, where the men would go out and go fishing for um, all kinds of fish, cod and haddock and halibut and salmon. And then they would come back after many, many weeks on the boats. And then they would be able to feed their families, feed the people on these uh, remote islands around them. And Quare really was founded in the early 1970s because they needed to have more food security, more economy. 
So they went out, they went out into the wild, they picked 3000 Atlantic salmon, they put them into a wooden pen, and they figured out how to raise them. Years later now, nearly 50 years later, Quare Arctic or Quare Fiskebret is, as it's known in Norway, is the most responsible salmon fisher fishery or salmon farmer in the world. We're talking about now there are there are others that are doing incredible work, but one of the most responsible and sustainable salmon farmers in the world. And it's that same integrity of that that fishing mentality, the idea of making sure that you're building economy on an island of 80 people in this very rural, very difficult way, because this is not an easy place to live with storms and, and, and times where there isn't any sunlight and all of these challenging systems around them. And they have figured out how to raise this salmon and how to not only feed the people that are around them, but also be able to have a sustainable and responsible ecosystem around salmon farming. And they've taught one another. There are several farms that are around them. They teach, they innovate together, and we learn and and really create this ecosystem that is significantly important from a local level all the way to the fish that gets sold here in the U.S., Wow. Wow. So Quare, you said it's been around for 50 years. Is that right? Yeah. The, um, it was founded in 1976. So nearly 50 years. Wow. And uh, again, just a small island with 80 people on it off the coast of Norway, right? That's correct. And over 23 are children. Oh, <laughs> So, so, I mean, it's, and there are other, there are other incredible companies there, a seaweed snack company called She and a microgreen um, grower and a stair maker. So wow. they've really, the, the anchor is the farm, mm -hmm. but so much has happened because of this community that continues to be built on Quarry Island. Wow. That's, uh, that's really amazing uh, to have so much innovation and entrepreneurism going on in such a small place. It's uh, yes. really impressive. Hardy yes. people. <laughs> Hardy people, but, but, but in that spirit of adventure, using technology, using data, using all of these different pieces in order to be able to rear the best salmon possible at the highest animal husbandry level. Hmm. You, you don't often think of animal husbandry and salmon, right? Uh, so again, something to think about uh, going forward. You have to. I mean, these are living, breathing animals sure. that have feelings that are highly sensitive. I mean, they don't eat if you spend a lot of time around the pens. I mean, these are ocean-raised salmon that are raised from the egg in our hatchery on land in freshwater all the way to harvest over the course of nearly three years. Wow. So this is a very um, delicate process. You have to have honor to the ecosystem that surrounds it, the marine mammals that surround it, all of the different um, fish and the seaweed and the environment that has to thrive, as well as these fish that need to thrive. And, and it's this technology where you can identify individual fish where you can make sure that the nutrition is the highest level so that it's getting the omega-3s that it requires, but without depleting the environment. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that was something you did share at the conference was the, uh, the high degree of technology and the application of it 
um, at Quare to really boost quality production. And again, in ways that I would have never contemplated, it just blew, blew my mind. So <laughs> they, um, you know, they're, the, it, they worked in tandem with Whole Foods to bring now a responsibly raised, extremely sustainable Atlantic salmon. And they are still the largest farmer in the world that's supplying salmon to Whole Foods. And Whole Foods has its own very, very high level standard. And so it's a process. It's a partnership with Whole Foods as, as there come innovations that come online and Quare knows about them like our packaging. I mean, we have switched to a fully recyclable, sustainable box that holds cold temperature, that is leak proof, trying to eliminate not ever will we claim to eliminate styrofoam altogether, but reduce the footprint and be able to have a fully recyclable box. The, Whole Foods is now requiring that from their salmon farmers. Mm, that's good to hear because packaging is such a, a an important issue as well in our whole food supply. And uh, again, was something that was spoken to very directly at the conference um, and plastic pollutions, et cetera. So I'm glad to hear that there's some very concrete steps being taken at Quare. So Jennifer, you just touched upon this um, and let's dive in. Can you talk about farmed versus wild salmon? So before the conference, I heard horror stories about salmon farming and how ecologically damaging the practice is to the health of the ocean. But I've also heard about wild salmon being overfished and depleted. So what are your thoughts about this choice that we face when we go to the supermarket? So if I may begin with a question. Sure. Have you ever sat down and asked if your ribeye on the menu was wild caught? <laughs> no, I, I never would have thought of that. That's a good question. We we expect that our food system now is is from things that we raise. Sure except when it comes to, to fish and seafood. And that narrative has been built after decades of, the, of different organizations building that narrative into our ecosystem, not just through social media, but through advertising and a number of other things. That the idea that wild is better than farmed, it's more nutritious, it's better for the environment, all of these things. The, the ocean and our waters and our food system are extremely complex. I think it's one thing that we can agree upon. The ocean at present has over 4.1 million commercial fishing boats in it today. And this is according to the um, FAO report from the UN last fall. Mm. So these are this is a fact. The fish cannot grow fast enough. In fact, 90% of our ocean is fished to or over capacity. Wow. Now, the issue with the salmon and the majority of the, the thought around the salmon when it comes to salmon consumption in the United States is that it's coming from this abundant fishery in Alaska. And it is one of the most important and well-managed fisheries in the world. It's protected by the constitution of the state of Alaska. It's, a, it's protected by the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, which is a fish and seafood act that is that is that um, was passed in Congress in the 1970s. And it is very important for economies, for fishermen as well. So it's a complex system. 
One of the things that happens is that there is a certain amount of wild salmon. There are salmon that run in the Copper River, for example, in Bristol Bay, where those are truly wild salmon, salmon that will spawn in rivers, it will make its way down the rivers into the ocean. And then like this miracle, it knows exactly where to go to go back up river. And in the midst of this journey, it will get caught and come to our plates. And when done in a sustainable way, when we're managing the fishery properly, it's in balance, we haven't blocked with um, dams and blocked the rivers, it is a truly sustainable system. In Alaska, there's also what's called a hatchery system. And there are a number of salmon, 1.5 billion salmon that are raised in a hatchery and then released into the waters. And that is part of that catch that people think is wild. It's a way to sort of keep up with our appetite mm -hmm. for salmon. And it also has been used for, for decades. It's not a new system. And then there's farmed. And just like you can farm chicken well, and you can farm chicken badly, you can do the exact same for salmon farming, or frankly, for, for other farming of, of any of our foods in our sure. food system, including fish and sure. seafood. So, you know, it's a system that when it is in balance, it is perfect. We haven't seen that necessarily yet, but if we lived in a world where fishers work with farmers, they we had farmers that had good farming practices, that the fishermen didn't feel a threat to their economy, that they worked in tandem, we could build a much more responsible blue food system. You know, there is, like Quare, like others, Aura King and others, there is responsibly raised salmon that have lower footprint feed models that ship their fish frozen so that you can lower the carbon footprint. It is possible to do this and to be able to support then a more sustainable wild stock because the reality is we, the majority of the fish and seafood we eat in the US is farmed over 55%. So we can't, the reality is we're not going to be able to live on wild stocks forever. We're going to have to figure out how to farm this. And then as part of a, what I would say is part of a treat, we would eat wild salmon. And then we would leave salmon in the, in our ocean for the whales that need it. And the marine mammals that need those feeder fish that the salmon eat. Right. We have to have a balanced system. Right, right. Hmm. So um, that makes me think then um, of when we go, as we as individuals go to shop for our meals and we go shopping for seafood, um, you know, what should we look for and, and what makes Quare a unique product on the markets? This is where the waters get a little murky <laughs> and where everyone that's out there needs to take on and champion responsible seafood. The first thing is no matter what ingredients you eat, you need to be asking where they come from. You need to be more active eaters. Now, in some ways, the other things that we buy are easier. Chicken, it's going to be marked natural, organic, or conventional. And there are only a few of them. You know what a chicken looks like when you walk up to the chicken in the protein case at the grocery store. You know what that looks like. And oftentimes on a menu, it'll be called out for its, for its farm. 
Same is true for beef. Same is true for lamb. Same is true for pork. You know, when you get Nyman Ranch that you're supporting a company where your dollars can meet your values, right? But when you walk up to the fish and seafood case, there's a lot of things you have to know because there might be 30 or 40 different types of fish and seafood in the case. So it can be overwhelming. How do you cook it? What questions do I ask? I think the first thing that you have to do is ask where it came from. Because when you just start the conversation, then you can get into a conversation of um, how was how did you source it? Maybe it's that you're living in the middle of the country you're wanting trout from Colorado. And at least then you know, you know, that it's a beautiful, sustainably farmed trout from Idaho, or it's a beautifully sustainable trout that um, was, that actually was caught wild, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you have to ask the question, where does it come from? Labeling now only requires that you have country of origin and species. And knowing that you're not going to know everything and that the waters are a little bit murky and that it's not easy to look it up, what I usually do is try to be an expert on the things that I love and care about. So with salmon, one of the things that I'm always trying to do is to get them to call out the farmers, just like they call out the farmers, whether it's the lettuce greens or that beautiful Colorado goat cheese, right? Call out the farmer. Mm -hmm. So then I know that I'm supporting the farmer who has the values that I believe in. But there is work to do on that one for sure. Yeah, you know, work, that's a, that's a good word to use for this, this whole thing, isn't it? Because I think, I know I'll speak personally for me. Um, I, I haven't been accustomed to putting in the work to learn about my food. <laughs> you know, I've just been sort of passive going to the store and choosing what looks good and, you know, or maybe what's on sale and not really thinking beyond that, frankly. And, and I think now it's a time where we do need to think beyond that and think more, um, purposefully, right. Um, about where our food's coming from and I think you said it as well, that what we're spending our money on aligns with our values, something to that effect. That's correct. I, I think that there's a lot that's happening in the world. Food is this thing that connects us, that we all have to be sustained by this incredible opportunity. And we all deserve it as a right to be able to enjoy and be well-fed. Blue foods, and those foods are foods that come from water. They're the plants, the animals, the algaes, the vegetables that come from water. They're some of the most sustainable foods on the planet. So you had said, you know, let's talk about seaweed. Seaweed is extremely regenerative. It actually will lower nitrogen levels, lower acidity levels in the waters where they grow. And seaweed farming, we will actually farm more seaweed in the United States than potatoes by 2040. Wow. <laughs> so imagine that you could change an ocean ecosystem just by the way you choose to snack. Hmm. One that's not dependent on land or water, because you know that we've already used up the arable land for our food production. One that actually gives us more vitamins and, and nutrients. And that's the same for oysters and bivalves and mussels and in that ecosystem for salmon. So it's it, at Quare, what we believe is that there is a responsible blue food system that is earning its seat at the table of the future of food. 
and that we all have a responsibility to stretch what we eat and try new things and raise children with a palate that will create an impact on our ecosystems as well as on the abundance that we need and, and make sure that we have the protection around it for our ocean ecosystems. Mm. I'm glad you chatted a little bit more and fleshed out that concept of blue foods. Because again, that, that's a concept and an expression I'd never heard of before until the conference and uh, you were sharing that with us. It really opened my eyes because I don't live on the ocean. <laughs> and um, so I'm not accustomed to thinking about right. you know blue foods. And that makes me think uh, about the topic of fresh fish versus frozen fish. Because again, um, I live in Denver, a mile high and a thousand miles from the closest ocean. Um, and yet, you know, most chefs and cooking shows, et cetera, they always say, choose the freshest fish possible for your recipe. Um, so I'm curious, what are the factors that you think we should consider between fresh and frozen when we're faced with that choice in the supermarket? It's such an interesting thing because if you're concerned about um, carbon and what's happening with the warming of our planet, which we know is from all of this carbon dioxide release, mm -hmm. then you have to be concerned about the way in which our food comes to us. And a big sure. part of that is transportation. Mm -hmm. Fish and seafood, I mean, it is a global world when it comes to fish and seafood. If it's mahi-mahi from Hawaii, it's coming flown if it's fresh. If it's salmon from Alaska, then it, and it's fresh during season, it's being flown, which is a gigantic carbon footprint. If I were to catch a fish off of the coast of San Diego and truck it to San Francisco fresh, it would have a higher carbon footprint than if I had a tuna from Indonesia that was flash frozen and brought on a container ship. Frozen is the new fresh. You almost can't tell the difference when a fish is frozen at very low temperatures, very quickly, right on the boat where they actually will fillet it, carve it out, and then flash freeze it. I have been in tastings where I could not tell the difference. Hmm. And not only that, but that means that if you get that Quarry Arctic frozen club pack, and you are have it in your freezer, it means that you thaw it in the refrigerator and you have dinner on the table in minutes. In fact, a lot of my favorite recipes, I just take those little portions from freezer to oven, brush it with my favorite marinade or my favorite rub, and then I bake it and it's and it's still ready within, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So it we can no longer, the reason why we think frozen is worse than fresh is because in the old days, they would go out, they would catch all of this fish, it would come to the grocery store, some of it would not sell, they would freeze it, and then they would go to sell it at a different time. But the freezing techniques weren't very good. So your vision of frozen is a mushy, textured, watery yeah. fish, which yep. <laughs> really is no longer the case. Yeah, that was something I, I think you and uh, some others described at the conference was the these advances in technology for uh, freezing seafood so that it does maintain its structure and character and flavor. And uh, again, something I'd never heard of before. Very interesting. 
Yes, correct. It's it's there are significant changes in technologies, as I said before, that happen to be wrapped around fish and seafood that make it a really exciting time. And one where we can look down the road and around the bend and you can know that you're contributing to something that is really the building of a new food system. We have not had a responsible blue food system in all of our history that was done at scale. Hmm. And realize too, just really quickly, that the majority of your blue foods come from fresh water, not from the ocean. Only 2% of all of the protein we eat worldwide comes from the ocean. So eating those freshwater fish is extremely important. And, you know, um, there are many, many states that have incredible freshwater fish production. That means that you can, you can actually buy something that's locally produced and, and be able to really support local fishermen rather than having something that comes from far away, which is also a very good thing. So, you know, at Quarry, we recognize the fact that we're bringing a fish from the Arctic. And we would like to sell more frozen fish, the hot dogs, the burgers, the, the, the club packs, those portions all come frozen. And the more we work at this and the more we educate, the more frozen fish will sell. Yeah, I, I've got to say the uh, salmon burgers and the salmon dogs were delicious. We at the conference, they were served up and I really, really enjoyed those. And um, uh, I hope... Are those available now in the store? Because uh, I've they been looking for them be, and I, I couldn't find them. So I don't well, know. Well, it's very exciting. They're going to be nationally distributed, the hot dogs in Whole Foods in a four pack. So uh, what we call a four by 56 gram. So 56 gram, just like a normal hot dog, uh -huh. four pack in the hot dog section of Whole Foods starting in January nationwide. Oh, that's great to hear because I really did enjoy it. And uh, I was disappointed when I couldn't find it. Yeah, and they're your weekly allowance and one hot dog of your long chain omega-3s. So, I mean, you talk about, and they don't, they taste just like a hot dog? Just like a hot dog. Yeah, I mean, they didn't taste strange. Um, they were just delicious. I really just enjoyed them. And especially how the chef uh, who was there presented them and offered them up and some unique, uh, you know, toppings and, and condiments and whatnot. But I, I definitely felt like it was a flavor that was accessible to most people, including children. I, I didn't think that, you know, a, a young child would turn their nose up at it. It didn't, it didn't seem fishy or anything. Um, uh, it, it just was really, really tasty. And it was good to know it was extra healthy. <laughs> Ketchup, mustard on a bun. And it, it looks like a dog talks like a dog. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, we were doing something fancy, obviously for the conference, but I will tell you that Side by side, the kids can get that serving of fish that you can't get down them when you're just trying to give them a, a you know, kind of a portion right. of a filet. And what I would say is it's a great entry point. You know, we all need to have these sort of entry foods mm -hmm. that get us to eat something that's maybe not as comfortable for us. Mm -hmm. And that dog will do it. <laughs> it is a delicious hot dog. We had the, the chef from the Denver Broncos was cooking those Jesus and boy, it was delicious. It was, it really was. And, and also the salmon burger. So maybe you start at the dog and move to the burger and then you go to the filet, something like that. <laughs> well, and, and that though, the hot dog and the burger we make from our trim. So it's all of that scrape meat and the trim that often gets thrown away in the process of 
providing you with a center cut filet of fish. That's right. So it also is lowering the food waste in the fish. And, you know, I mean, these yes. are these these byproducts are extremely, extremely important because we want to use if we're going to spend three years raising a fish at Poiré, we want to make sure that we're getting we're using every single bit of it. Yeah, that was a, a topic at the conference as well that stood out to me is uh, food waste and efforts to reduce that and the concept from many of the food producers, both, uh, you know, cattle ranchers and, and you at Quare, Jennifer, that the concept of respecting the animal that, you know, has been used to feed us and that we don't want to waste um, any part of it. It's all equally valuable and it's just up to us to figure out how to use it um, and, and, and maximize that, that animal's life, basically. Well, it just, I mean, when you think about the time, the care, you know, this is a fish that, you know, is it, it's, it's a long process and you have to honor their lives. If we're going to have the honor of, I always say, quarry salmon are happy salmon with one bad day. (laughs) Yeah. And so if we're going to live that with honor, uh, and I think that everyone that's on Quare from Alf Guren Knudsen, our CEO, from the family, the um, Yermond and Ovard and Ida who own the farm mm -hmm. that's, you know, that was started by their grandfather and their father. This is something that they believe in. It is in their DNA. And they're constantly asking, are we doing enough? Are we are we innovating enough? Are we taking care of things enough? I always marvel at how what their intention is and how they activate that intention. Hmm. It's it is it really is such a chain of well being from the water all the way to the plate. Wow, with quarry. That that's really inspiring, and it it definitely again, for me, uh, makes me feel better, frankly, about what's on my plate and how it got there. And it's a little, even (laughs) it's just a little thing that I can do to, again, contribute to more eco-friendly, sustainable food production practices. And that's, uh, you can't say that about everything on our plates, (laughs) unfortunately. Oh, and, and not around our blue foods. It's very, very important that we all understand where, how important this ecosystem is, how important these foods are, and that we should be eating more of them. In the U.S., depending on what sort of statistic you believe, we eat only about 15 pounds of fish and seafood per capita per year. We eat 35 pounds of avocado. We eat over 100 of land-based animals. This is this is something where one of the reasons I believe why kids have issues with, if, if you're talking about concentration at school, whether there are higher rates of cancer or heart disease, you know, these, these blue foods are significantly nutritious and we're not eating enough of them. So, you know, we're 17th in the world in um, aquaculture production. So we have a we have a bright, incredible future to grow this, but it's not just grow. We have to grow smartly. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so at the conference, Jennifer, you announced a big initiative for Quare, and I was hoping you could share that with our listeners because I thought it was really interesting and inspiring. It wasn't for Quare. It was really for me personally, which is an initiative called Fed by Blue. 
And in my work, and I told you my passion and, and, and really understanding that it's not that the good work isn't happening. It's that we have a communication problem. And this mm-hmm. is a communication problem that's across the entire blue food system in every country where we're taking resources from our from our fishermen in Indonesia and not leaving it there for them to be able to reap the benefits of this nutritious food to the United States where oyster farmers are losing their licenses to farm something that's regenerative and important because somebody doesn't want to look at an oyster farm outside of their home on the coast. So we are in a critical moment and the anchor of that is communication. And so I, along with two partners, have launched a program called Fed by Blue. And Fed by Blue has many different communication strategies, including K through 12 education. But we're also doing a docu-series that will start to tell these character-driven stories so that people can really root for the character on the water, farmers, fishermen, NGOs, uh, communities that are trying to fight to protect their waters so that they can start to really be able to support support this responsible and important blue food system. Wow. Um, and can you repeat that one more time, what, what the initiative is called? Fed by Blue. Fed by Blue. And as I recall, you played um, sort of a trailer for, for this initiative. And I just remember it being just beautiful, visually beautiful. And the story being told was beautiful and inspiring. Um, any updates on that, Jennifer? So we, the series is going to be called Hope in the Water. It is executive produced by Andrew Zimmerman, the very famous chef from Bizarre Foods. And uh, he's a social justice advocate, cookbook author, and celebrity chef. And David E. Kelly. David E. Kelly is a 13-time award-winning, Emmy award-winning producer and writer of such series work as Big Little Lies, The Undoing, Ally McBeal, and a number of others. And they have agreed to come on board and executive produce this series. We're filming it now. And the odds are it will be on a station near you in the first quarter of 2024. Oh, terrific. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, For those of us who like foodie shows and travel shows and beautiful photography and inspiring messages and stories, it sounds, uh, again, based upon the trailer um, and and just knowing what your passion is behind it, I I know it's going to be something uh, terrific to, to look forward to and you said the first quarter of 2024? Yes, you'll see um, a lot of content, different things that we're doing next year. We will be updating everyone through our channels, um, Instagram, all are at Fed by Blue. And, and so we'll be giving everyone some updates, teasing it along, making some announcements, but it's a very exciting time. We've been working on the series um, five years, but really in earnest, about a year and a half, raising the money, getting the studio on board, getting, of course, this incredible team, showrunner Brian Falk, who has done a lot of work with Robert Redford and has done work with Harry Belafonte and with the UN. He won the Emmy Award for What's Eating America on NBC, the entire intuitive content team and David E. Kelly Productions. So it's a it's a big team effort. We did a call for stories that was worldwide. There were hundreds of stories that were submitted from fishers and farmers and all sorts of people doing work on the water. They were all interviewed. We 
we spoke to people mm. and we've di- we've we've sort of sifted that down into a handful of stories for the series and we're really excited to get started and then have the chance to share it with everyone. Wow, that's amazing. Um my goodness, you you must I know you're very energetic, but it's amazing that you're involved in a project that big. And that's just kind of a side project for you. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I mean, my heart, I've always said that the minute I met this farmer, that was the stopping point for me. It was the story I had always wanted to tell. If I could tell the story of a water farmer in the same way that we have that reverence for our land farmers, then I knew I could get you to understand that it was possible. And I, mm. what I say is that there really is hope in the water. Mm. Wow, that's a great message. So, um, Jennifer, can you maybe just give us a little bit more uh, of a deeper understanding or a broader understanding about how our choices matter when we shop for food or when we, we eat out, when we're traveling? You know, what can people do to make a difference and eat more sustainably? I think there are a number of things we already talked about. You have to know where your food comes from. You have to be an active eater and engage in conversation. Mm-hmm. We are in a world that is enormously filled. In fact, I would say the cup runneth over with information because of the internet and because of social media. But we know that a lot of that is disinformation. We know that a lot of the the probably the powers that be that are supplying us with food, they make the assumption that we don't care. And you've got to determine what are the things that are important to you. I know that, for example, my parents are really worried about omega-3s and they're worried about eating right. But my son's generation, my 30-year-old son, he's worried about climate and is more of a climatarian than he is eating for nutrition. All of these things have this sustainable thread that has to go with it in order for us to be able to feed everyone, particularly in a climate that is changing so quickly. So there are tools that you can use. I mean, there are different NGOs, the Marine Stewardship Council, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, Seafood Watch, and others that are doing the hard work on the water. Now, certifications and recommendations, fair trade, they can't do all of the work for you. Don't just be someone who looks for the certification and just buys it because there are holes in all systems. Mm -hmm. But you've got to get in there and have the conversation. I think obviously going to your farmer's markets, that's, that's a great place to start. Not only does the economy shift and more of the money stays in the hands of the of the farmer, but you can have those conversations about what it is that's going on with them. You know, Colorado is a great example with the drought. Why were there not enough tomatoes? You know, I shouldn't just be shopping and looking for raspberries all the time. There are shifts and seasons and things that really are there for a reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're there for a reason. The reason why we don't have raspberries in the wintertime in Colorado is because there's snow on the ground sure. and you shouldn't <laughs> just keep eating that. Again, that consumptive entitlement that says I get to eat raspberries whenever I want. So therefore I'm going to get them from South America. Mm-hmm. So it's understanding that and slowing down a little bit and spending some time with it. We have to understand that time in the kitchen is not time wasted. 
And we have this, we were in this whole kind of circumstance where we think that food has to come to us quickly. We've got to get in and get out and get on with our lives. And there is this thread where food really connects us. And it's important. It, 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 even just by sitting down and eating, you eat more fruits and vegetables when you sit down for a meal than one that you eat on the run. So mm. it's, this is the way we're going to sustain ourselves in the future. And let me tell you something at the end of the day, mother earth will win. Yeah. You know, I'm rooting mother earth will win, not human, sure. not humanity. Mother earth will win in one way, shape or form. So how about if we're active participants in the protection of this enormously important resource while also understanding how to produce it so that we have enough food for all? Wow. Great thoughts. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, and it, it makes me think of in the conference, and I don't know if it was you or another speaker, but they used or they challenged us to think um instead of ourselves as consumers, instead as contributors. Was that, that you? Was, or... Well, I was quoting my dear friend, Alexandra Cousteau. Okay. For those of us that are old enough, we know Jacques Cousteau, who was oh, considered yeah. to be one of the most important oceanographers and explorers of our time. That's her grandfather. Ah. And what she says is, and it is enormously, it is enormously profound, we can no longer have an extraction mindset that we're going to extract resources from the planet and expect it to keep up. Mm -hmm. We have to have a regenerative mindset. And what that means is, is that we're putting back. We can't just be taking and we can't just be flat and sustaining. We have to put back because we've been taking away from the planet for so long. Mm -hmm. What that means is shifting the way in which we create value out of our behavior. We can't be measured by how many dollars or the how much we spent for Christmas and what we bought. That is a consumer mentality. We mm -hmm. can't be looked at in terms of our success and how many housing starts we had in any given month because that is a consumptive metric. We have to think of ourselves instead as contributors in contribution to a healthier planet. So again, if I go back to seaweed, if I eat that seaweed snack, I can be in contribution to a healthier ocean ecosystem instead of in consumption of a snack in the afternoon. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Again, being informed and intentional, right? That's and right. And really having, I think you said earlier, sort of determining what your priorities are, what's most important to you. Your priority could be that all you want to do is have a snack in the afternoon, but pick the right one. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I know I do. <laughs> well, I'm I'm obsessed with Cicerones now. They are this <laughs> unbelievable snack from Blue Dot Kitchen, Joth Davis. They are this little, I mean, think of like a little checks you know, cereal, you just yeah. pop them in. They're made from um, kelp that comes from the U.S. So supporting U.S. farmers. And it, like I said, they're all out there. All of these oh. great ingredients are all out there for us to enjoy. So it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's just another way you can make a difference. 
Yeah. What's it called again, Jennifer? Because at first it's, I thought you said chicharrones and that struck and me as odd because that's pork rinds. Yeah, S-E-A, <laughs> chicharrones. Oh, okay. So they're playing on the word. Okay. You got it. Exactly. Chicharrones. All right. I'm going to have to check that out. That's right. So, um, Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. I think we're getting close to our time together ending. And I just, I'm curious if you can share, how can our listeners learn more about you, your efforts, and Quare Arctic as well? Well, Quare is, and you're doing a very good job saying it, so good job pronouncing it. Is, <laughs> I practiced. Um, it's K as in kangaroo, V as in Victor, A-R-O-Y, arctic.com. So quarearctic.com. So look for that. Um, sometimes people pr pronounce it Kavaroy because they get that V yeah. right in there, but K-V-A-R-O-Y-Arctic.com. And you can learn more about the other project that I'm working on, Fed by Blue, at fedbyblue.org. Okay. And Super. all the social media handles are the same, Quarry Arctic, at Quarry Arctic, or at Fed by Blue. Okay, terrific. Well, uh, I know I'm going to be following you and Fed by Blue and Quarry Arctic going forward. I'm going to check out those chicharrones. Uh, those sound really yummy. <laughs> they're so, fantastic. And they're online <laughs> and you can order them up. Uh, okay, wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today and sharing such helpful insights and stories about our food supply and how our personal choices really do matter. And I thank you, podcast listeners. Um, please keep an eye on RFT.com, realfoodtraveler.com, for more on the topics of sustainable food and travel.